So, let's dive in. I'm Keith, by the way, if this is your first time visiting, um, lead pastor here, and uh, love kind of doing interesting and different things, and, uh, and we're going to do some of that. We have been journeying. Um, we are an unapologetically Jesus-centered church. Uh, and so that means that that informs everything that we do and everything that we teach on and explain. So because of that, we really dwell a lot in the New Testament. Um, however, we've been taking a dive back to understand the Old Testament story through the lens of Jesus for a little while. And so each week we're, we're kind of working our way through, through that. And uh, I really encourage you, if you're interested, to actually join us through the podcast to catch up if you haven't, because I'm going to make a few assumptions, and it's okay. You'll still be able to be fine if you haven't listened to anything else. But um, we're not going to recap everything. I'll say that. Have you ever tried to give a gift, uh, or, or has anyone, let's, let's put it this way, has anyone ever tried to give you a gift or help you out, and there's no strings attached, it's not, it's not that sort of thing, but it still like makes you uncomfortable? Like, no, 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 unnecessary, I got it myself. Ever had one of those moments? Like, sometimes maybe let's say you're, you're outside and you're trying to load something really awkward into the back of your car, and your neighbor's like, hey, do you want a hand with that? And, and a hand would be incredibly helpful if you're honest. Like, super helpful. But you know that if you work hard enough, you can probably do it on your own. So you say, no, I got it. And you totally strain more than you need to, or you push away something that someone would love to offer you, and there's no real reason. It's not because you think that they have an agenda. It's just because there's something there that, like, makes it difficult to receive something that someone else wants to give us. Can you relate to that? It's a weird thing because there's no good reason for it, but it's there. So um, Hebrew Bible professor Ray Lubeck says this. He says, the plot conflict of the biblical story is the story of how an irresistible force meets an immovable object. The irresistible force is God's desire to bless and the immovable object is human stupidity, selfishness, and independence. And so this is really the story that we get over and over. God's desire to bless people and bring them into a life of wholeness, of connection, of restoration, all of that stuff. And what we see over and over again is people who are like, I'd just rather kind of do it myself. And it does not go well. Over and over and over. Um, this morning, we are continuing, and this is all, all so much about self-sufficiency, it's all about reconciliation, but this morning we're continuing this Genesis story that takes that concept and kind of, this week specifically, shoots it into hyperspeed. So last week, Dwayne helped us unpack a little bit of the, I, I talked about Abraham several weeks ago, and then Dwayne last week talked about Isaac and specifically that moment of sacrifice where if you look at it from one way, you're like, okay, do I love God enough to kill my kid? Is that what the point is? I hope not. I hope not. That is not the point that the original Hebrew people heard when they heard the story of, of uh, Abraham taking Isaac up to the mountain. The story was that God was making absolutely clear that God will never demand that from Abraham. Other gods demanded child sacrifice. This is not the nature of God, and it's a very dramatic way of doing it. But the whole point is that, um, that there's this, this journey of trying to trust God and learning to hear God say over and over, I will provide. I will take care of you. All right. So today, we get to look at Abraham's conniving little grandkid. All right. His name is Jacob. 
And this story is Isaac's son. It's all full of family favoritism. It's full of deception. It's full of lies. It is super hard to find anything good or redeeming about the gentleman I'm about to tell you a story about. Genuinely. And I know you're not supposed to say that about the Bible. But it's just, it, it is what it is. Um, we are talking about a hot mess of a family that has dysfunction like crazy. But when you remember that both dad and grandpa tried to sell off their wives as sisters to protect themselves, then you kind of see that this proverbial half-eaten apple from Genesis 3 is not falling far from the tree. So, here we go. This message could be called, Why Does God Keep Working With Such Lousy People? All right, but it sounds cynical. So, from, from this tree reacher which is what the story of, the, of, of Adam and Eve is about tree reaching. It's about people wanting to go their own way and grab something that's not theirs to the heel grabber, which is literally the name of Jacob. It means heel grabber, okay? And so we're going to get into this story. We are going to... I'm going to just tell the story, but it's actually nine chapters of Genesis. So I've only ever done one message in 18 years that has covered more ground. Um, but we're going to do this, and it's going to be really fun. Uh, and, and we're going to find out that there's a couple stories that you might be familiar with that you didn't realize what was actually going on. And then we're going to see why it helps us follow Jesus better. Okay, so um, Jacob is going to be on brand. I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag right off the bat. He's going to be on brand for the book of Genesis because this, this heel grabber that Jacob's name is going to be, it means, it means literally like swipe the leg, right? It means, it means somebody that the physical picture of the Hebrew word is someone that knocks a heel out as someone's walking and trips them, right? Trips them up. It's, it's, a, it's a literal version of the, the idea of a deceiver. Um, so, he, like, the, he, Jacob ends up being more like, as you'll see in a moment, the deceitful serpent in the garden. Like, that was his life coach. Um, and, and so this isn't a story about the moral virtues of the main characters, all right? But there is something foundational that is important about today's story. And so the life of Jacob is about a guy who does not believe he is going to get God's blessing, so he spends his life hurting himself and everyone around him trying to steal it. All right. So that's it. I can just sit down. But we're actually going to look at the scriptures. But the main point about Jacob is he's a guy who doesn't believe he's going to get God's blessing, so he spends his life hurting himself and everyone around him trying to steal it. All right? He tries to scheme and steal this blessing and this abundance for himself instead of trusting what God is going to give him. Now, we talked last week about this idea that God recycles, so we're in good shape. All right, so we get over and over the fact that Yahweh's God is different than the ancient gods. People are going to be horrible, but God is going to continue to work with them and redeem it and, and restore. So I want you to keep that in mind even as we see this. All right, I just told you that. Okay, let's look at the first scripture. So in Genesis 25, we have, uh, we've been journeying with Isaac uh, and his wife, Rebecca. Okay, and this promise comes to Rebecca. All right, this, this prophetic promise as Rebecca is pregnant. So she's pregnant and she's, she's feeling not just the fact that she has twins. There were other twins in the story that happened earlier in Genesis. It did not end well for them. I have twins. I understand this dynamic. Uh, but, but what she's feeling is that there is a battle going on in her belly, in her womb. All right? And she's, she's saying, why is this happening? So she, she inquires of the Lord. There's all this amazing language. So she just, she just asks God and God just apparently responds quite clearly. 
But the Lord says to her, there are two nations in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, this is a reversal of what the assumptions are for this culture. That last line, the older will serve the younger. God is in the habit of turning this whole world of the way that um, influence and blessing happened and flipping it on its head, all right? This is really, really important. In the Hebrew world, the firstborn had all of the rights. The firstborn male had all of the rights in the family. Not only did they get twice as much, or maybe a little bit more, depending on certain traditions, um, but twice as much of the inheritance, but they also got all of the influence, and it was where the lineage was, would travel through when you would talk about families and all of this stuff. So, I just want you to, to, to notice here that in every single generation in the Hebrew Bible, the firstborn is not the prioritized one. Okay? So think about this. It's, it's kind of crazy. It's just, just this first starting point. So when Cain kills Abel, the older, well, the, the twins, when Cain kills Abel, then the promise comes through Seth, Adam and Eve's nextborn, not through the oldest one, right? Ishmael is the oldest one, but the promise comes through Isaac. Joseph, which we'll talk about soon, is going to be the youngest brother of 12. Moses is the liberator, even though Aaron, his older brother, should be the one who has the responsibility. David is chosen even though he's the youngest of eight. Solomon is younger than uh, Adinijah, all right? Over and over, even here, what we see, and the reason that I'm sharing this, is that over and over, God is establishing a pattern of favoring those who were underprivileged and, and under-resourced, even when they don't deserve it, okay? So all the ones who would get all of the wealth, who would get all of the influence, God says, I'm going to do something different. And I'm going to flip this on its head. And the ones who normally would not have influence and power, they're going to be elevated. So you can hear it in Mary's song. You've lifted up the lowly, right? You can hear it in the words of Jesus, but this is the beginning of it, all right? So God says, listen, I'm going to do this. I'm going to continue the promise that has always been, okay? And you're going to see this, this younger one's going to be blessed. Here's the problem, though. When this happens, Jacob comes out, and he comes out grabbing. So God has made a promise to Rebekah, but when the time comes for her to give birth, there are twin boys in the womb. The first came out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. We're just going to find, okay, so the writer of Genesis obsessed with, apparently, what Esau looked like, because he was, like, we'll find out more in a minute. But, but so, so they name him Harry. Esau means Harry. So they literally name this guy like, well, Harry it is. Uh, so, so he comes out. Um, after this, his brother came out and his hand was grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. He was named heel grabber. Um, Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth to them. So here is this thing that comes out. So remember, there's been a promise that has been made to mom that the younger or that the older will serve the younger. But when they come out, there's already this, this grab. The first image is one of grabbing, okay? I've destined that the younger will become the one with authority and blessing, but he comes out grabbing. He comes out trying to get the very thing that God says he's going to do for him. So the whole story is about this continuing. So Esau is a hunter, and Jacob is a bit more of a homebody, and we get our first moment for Jacob scheming to come out uh, during um, Stewgate. All right, so this is a... Steaming hot 
pile of stew. All right, so here's what happens. Um, one day, we get um, Jacob. He's cooking some stew, and Esau comes in. He's been out hunting, maybe, or whatever, um, but he's, he's just famished. And he says, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. This is why he was also called Edom. The word for red is Adam, uh, and very similar to, get this, the first human. Very, very similar linguistically. But literally what he says is, I want some Adam Adam. I want some red red. That's what, and it's translated into red stew because he was cooking. Give me some of that red red. So they nicknamed the guy Red. So now he's got the name Harry, but also the nickname Red because of the stew gate, but also because he is super red with his hair. And apparently maybe not that bright. Because what he says is, I'm so hungry, he's kind of made out to be not a deep thinker, but I'm so hungry, like, just give it to me. And Jacob is apparently already ready for any opportunity. He says, well, first, sell me your birthright. So give me the rights and privileges that come with being the firstborn. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. This is super overdramatic. Like, but, so Esau, I'm about to die what, is, what good is the birthright to me? So in this moment, all of a sudden, he just gives it up, right? He just gives it up. And so um, he swore an oath. Oh, so Jacob said, swear to me first. So Jacob's like, let's get this thing in ink, right? I'm, t- I'm taking advantage of this situation. So he does, all right? Then Jacob gave him the food. He ate and drank. Then he got up and left. He said Esau despises his birthright, which means he was bitter. But we find out later that he does care about it quite a bit. Um, so he either thinks that he can get rid of this whole thing and get out of it later, or he's not so sharp. We're not sure. But he doesn't tell anybody about this. But check this out. So the guy whose nickname is Adam, all right, trades their ability to rule and exercise authority for the right to some food. Are we seeing this? Are we seeing Genesis 3? Adam says, I'll take the food instead of the blessing, Right? So, so this whole story is set up to be a parallel and a reminder of what plays out in the book of Genesis. All right? And all of the imagery. If you, uh, one of the scholars that I like to work with, he says, if you have a metal detector and you're going through the book of Genesis and you're looking for the word blessing, in Genesis 3, it goes, and then the next 20 chapters, it's kind of like, beep, beep, here and there. And then you get to chapter 25 and the Jacob story, and all of a sudden it goes, that is the main, that is the main um, idea here, understanding blessing, all right, and curse. So, anyways, uh, Esau's not innocent in all of this by any stretch, um, but we fast forward now. So we've gone through Stugate, and we fast forward to an old, blind, and senile Isaac, all right? Apparently, now it is time. Isaac's about to die. He's getting older, and it's time for the blessing to happen, all right? And this was a big deal. Apparently, nothing has been said to anybody about this whole birthright being sold because the father says to Esau, hey, firstborn, go out. He loved wild game. Isaac did. Go out, hunt me some of that wild game, bring it back to me, and as we eat, I will give you my blessing because I'm old and I'm not going to be around for much longer. So Esau, (laughs) he's like, this is great. I got my bowl of stew earlier. Now I'm going to get a bowl of stew with dad and the blessing. We're just going to keep sound about this. So he goes out. But mom overhears it. And mom loves Jacob. All right? So mom is a, does not also far, fall, fall, fall far from the family tree. And mom says, oh, let's double cross 
the double-crosser with Esau. So, enter Goatgate. All right. Um, so now, oh boy. Uh, okay. This is not worth wasting time on. Okay. Where's the little... The, yeah, there we go. It, it looks like he's eating. It's supposed to be his little little uh, thing. Bill, talk to Bill and Kristen about goats, speaking of which, they're obsessed with them. So, okay. All right, so what ends up happening is mom says, um, mom says, hey, your father Isaac is blind now. All right? So here's what we should do. I'll make him the food that he likes. You go out and kill a goat. All right? And put the goat's skin on your arms and on the back of your neck and we'll put your brother's clothes on so you'll smell like him and you'll, you'll feel like him. Family, am I right? So we get this scandal. So, so this is what's happening. So Jacob dresses up with goat skin all over his arms and neck. What on earth was Esau? Seriously. You've got like smooth arms and you've got hairy arms and then you've got a goat and those are not the same things. Like this writer... Like, what on earth did Esau look like? I wish, I wish we had cameras back then. All right, so um, this is once again another parallel to Genesis 3. Remember when the snake says to Eve that if she eats the fruit of the forbidden tree, her eyes will be opened? So in other words, he's saying you're blind right now. You're easily deceived by God. This is what the deceiver is saying. So here, again, we get an Isaac who is actually blind, and because of his blindness, he's going to get deceived. All right, so Jacob's mom hatches this plan for Jacob to appear as Esau for the blessing. But Jacob says, here's just an interesting little tidbit. Jacob says, if I'm found out, here's another one back to Genesis 3. If I am found out, I will become, literally, I will become a deceiver in his eyes, and I will be under a curse right? Because the deceiver, the snake, in this case, gets the curse. So he says, I will be under a curse. Um, and then here's what the mother said, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say, go and get them for me. Interesting thing happens here. After this, we never get any more information on Rebecca. She's the only matriarch that we don't hear about her death. We don't hear any more details about her life after this moment. Um, it's the only time in Genesis her son leaves town shortly, which we'll find out about. She, as far as we know, is never reunited with her son. And so she loses him through this. So she thinks that what she's going to do is going to bring like blessing and good times for both of them, but ultimately it actually brings separation. It actually brings curse, if you interpret it the right way. So anyways, this whole, this whole ruse, it works. Jacob lies. Isaac is deceived. Isaac offers the blessing of the firstborn to Jacob with all of its resources and privileges. And then Esau, a few minutes later, comes back with the game, ready for the blessing, finds out he got duped, and he is furious. All right? And so, so what ends up happening here is he goes to dad, and he begs him. He says, do you have any blessing left for me, please? You've got to have more. You've got to have more in the bag. And dad kind of makes this statement to him that it does not sound like a blessing at all. Um, it sounds more like a curse. But dad says, what's done is done. You're going to live away from the earth and heaven's riches, of, of earth's and heaven's riches. You're going to have conflict. It's a rough foreshadowing 
of the political tensions between Israel and Edom to the south later on. Remember, this book was written many years later, and there's all this foreshadowing about what Israel's history was going to look like. So, so we're trying to see there's going to be tension here, and it's going to be between the families and the clans of these two brothers. Um, so, so anyways, um, just be reminded. Everyone here is doing the wrong thing with the wrong motives all the time. But God is still somehow working to bring about the right thing. Jacob's son, Joseph, we'll talk about him probably next week, um, he would eventually say what you intended for evil, God reformed for good. And so we're seeing some of that here, God rerouting things. So anyways, Esau says, oh, buddy, when, you, when dad is dead, I am going to kill you. And it's not an empty threat. It is very much real. And everybody knows it. So here's what happens. Why has this not been made into major, major motion picture yet? Like, this is just nuts. And it's not even, uh, there's so much to go. So Rebecca, the mom, is scared for Jacob's life. And she says, well, we're not supposed to marry outside of our kind of overall people anyways. So she gets Isaac to send Jacob back to her brother, Laban, to find a wife with his cousin. But so anyways, so that works. And she sends him far away. And Jacob goes to find another wife who is under kind of the family of Abraham. Um, and, and, that's, and that's what happens. So he begins to leave town, uh, and he's also happy to be running from Esau. But he will be haunted for decades because of what happened between him and Esau. Fear of Esau, brokenness over the relationship, all of that. Esau stays, and Esau spitefully marries a Canaanite woman, which is a big old up yours to his parents. And that is not interpretation. That is literally finding out that Canaanite women displeased his dad. He says, I know exactly what I'm going to do right now. Dad, I can't stand you. There, this is just so much family problems here. All right. So um, we are moving on, friends. Whew, I think we're about halfway through the story. On his way to exile, Jacob is traveling. And Jacob's traveling alone. And what happens is Jacob lies down. We're, we're told that he, he, he's got nothing with him, so he lays his head on a pillow that is a rock, and he gets this vision in a place called Bethel, all right? And this vision is a ladder that is reaching up to heaven, Jacob's ladder, or as we may know it better, a stairway to heaven. Ladder and stairway are the same word in Hebrew, so a path up to heaven, and, uh, and he sees this happening, and at the top of the ladder, all right, is a vision of God. And what God does in this moment as he's sleeping is God reiterates the promise of the covenant that has come through Abraham, through Isaac, and now through Jacob. God says, I will, I will, I will. Notice the language, okay? I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go, yeah? Right? I will watch, I will watch over you. I will bring you back. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Are we picking up the language here? I'm working, I'm going to do this, I'm going to redeem, I'm going to bring, I was the one over and over again, okay? And here's what we find out. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it, okay? So Jacob, we get a glimpse that Jacob is unaware of the fact that God is with him wanting to do anything. Jacob, no doubt, has heard the promises, 
but is completely unaware of the presence of God. And is Jacob saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. I'm going to get the blessing. I'm going to steal it. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to listen to my mom when she says double-cross the family. And God says, I will. <laughs> and this vision is a reminder that I, have, I am continuing to work here, Jacob. So Jacob has this moment, and it's so wonderful. And he, he remembers for like 30 seconds. And then all of a sudden he's back to all by myself. So, so Jacob starts again. And he gets into this new land, and we are, I'm going to fast forward through the next several decades. Because all of a sudden, Jacob forgets about this promise, and he begins, and, and the deceiver meets his match with his uncle. So Laban also happens to be super deceptive, all right? So Jacob falls in love with this one girl, his daughter. She's the second born, not the first. So he wants to marry her on the wedding night. Dad pulls an old switcheroo, and apparently it's dark, and we're not going to talk about that anymore. But he wakes up, and he finds out he married the wrong woman. Oh, that's after laboring for years and years and years. He's upset, and Laban says, no problem. I'll give you Rachel, too. You just have to work for another decade nearly. So, so this is what ends up happening. And so he ends up working and working. But he eventually marries them. Then there's all this family drama. He starts to get wealth. He also double-crosses Laban by getting more of his flocks than he should. There's the women want more kids, and, he's not, and, and it doesn't work well, so they do a, a Hagar and, and Sarah kind of a thing where they bring in servants and say, have a kid with my servant because we want more kids. So four wives later, 12 sons later, and a whole bunch of more family drama, we have born the future tribes of Israel. <laughs> I hope you're picking up the fact that this is all coming out of such a not-too-great story. Twelve tribes, twelve sons, born completely out of dysfunction. They are screwing this up so bad, and God is still building a promise. Um, but it's annoying to watch, honestly. It's annoying to watch the power of the selfishness here. Jacob is... He's the worst of the patriarchs. We're not supposed to say who the worst is, but it's Jacob. All right. What is God going to do with a guy like this? All right, so Jacob, finally, he feels this draw to go back to the land that God promised him, the land that God had told his people to go into. Because remember, he left that when he went to, to join Laban and, and, and them. So he, he decides to separate. That's full of conflict too, but we won't get into that whole story. So he brings his family and he begins to re-enter the land that they were called into. But while he's doing this, he knows now, after decades, that he's going to be meeting his brother Esau. So the tension is building. And Jacob is still the man he's always been, and he is terrified. All right? So who knows what's going to happen at that encounter? The last time he saw Esau, Esau said, I'm going to kill you. All right? So Jacob prepares for the next day because he has heard that Esau is traveling toward him as well. And he's ready to pacify him with all of these gifts, like hoping that that'll like make his anger calm down. I'm going to give you a bunch of goats. I'm going to do all this, a bunch of flocks. And then in case it gets violent, which he's fully expecting, he separates his family into groups and puts himself neatly at the back of the pack. Solid guy. Uh, so, so anyways, this is him getting ready. He tells everybody to go ahead of me. Now, here's one saving grace. One saving grace is that he does 
cry out to God that evening. And he prays to God. Now, it's a very selfish prayer, but at least he's directing it to God, right? And then he does something very interesting. He sends everybody out just a little bit further, and he stays and camps alone for the night, which I'm going to interpret in a healthy way, saying maybe he was actually ready to do some soul-searching because he had no idea what was happening the next day. And here we go. Here we go. Because while he is camping out alone, a man comes to meet him, and randomly they wrestle for hours. What? So weird, right? So weird. But Jacob is scrappy. And so this is a power struggle that lasts all night long, and nobody seems to be winning. In the midst of it, Jacob is starting to get the sense that this isn't just any guy, that it's actually God meeting him, all right? And in the midst of not being able to end this match, that's weird, but the God figure, whether some, some interpret it as an angel, messenger of God, whatever, um, in the midst of not being able to end this match, the God, we are told, touches the socket of Jacob's hip and throws it out of joint. So in the middle of wrestling... They're just fighting, fighting, fighting. Nobody can gain an edge. Apparently, there's so much power here that this guy just touches the hip. Actually, touches is, it can also be interpreted as, as hit. It's the same word. Um, but for whatever reason, he is hit in such a way that is so strong that it pops his hip out of socket. Okay. Can I just say, here's, have fun. Have fun with this, everybody. We'll see if you come back next week. <sighs> um. The guy hits the literal hollow of Jacob's thigh. Remember, the story here is God wanting to bless. And how has the blessing been played out, the promise to Abraham over and over? I will give you land and what's the second one? People, right? Descendants, multiplication. How do you multiply? The theological word we use for what happens here is uh, nut punch. I, this is Hebrew. This is not a joke. What we see in this story is that in the midst of this wrestling, God says, how can I get through to you? And God hits him in the place where he is responsible for building his own blessing. Doesn't have kids if, after that. Benjamin is born later in the story, but we have good reason to believe that Rebecca was already pregnant, or that Rachel was already pregnant. Um, so what we see here, and it's like, why have we never heard this? Well, just start looking for it, and you'll see all the Hebrew scholars that are like, yeah, this is, this is clearly what's being said. It's just weird to write it down, you know. Um, but the angel hits Jacob in the groin, the biological source of his fruitfulness, God is saying, I'm trying to lead you to go before you to bless you, and you are just trying to do it yourself so much. And so he wounds him in the part of the body where he generates his own blessing. It's a reminder to Israel of their story, to trust the God who brings life from barren wombs and not to try to keep making their own way all the time. It's intended to be a bigger picture than the literal. But it is an eye-opening moment and no doubt a painful one for Jacob. Jacob understands that he's wrestling with God. And here's what happens, though. In the midst of all of this, still, he holds on to God. <laughs> Oops. Sorry. 
There we go. Um, oh, I was supposed to show you there. Oh, here it is. Yeah. The man says, so even after his hip is wrenched, even after he's been inflicted with this wound, he's apparently still holding on because the man says, let me go for it's daybreak. And Jacob replies, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Now, hold on. I won't let you go unless you bless me. I thought Jacob already had a blessing. I thought he already got his blessing. So the guy says, what's your name? Now, here's the interesting thing. So many years ago, the last time Jacob received a blessing, he received it from his father, Isaac. And when he walked into the room, Isaac says, what's your name? And what did he say? I am Esau. The last time he was asked, what is your name in connection with a blessing? He said, I am someone that I am not. He said, I'm Esau. He lied. He deceived. But this time, see, this time he's honest. This time he says, I'm Jacob, the heel grabber. Okay? And so, when he answers this, the man looks at him and he says, actually, no. Your name will no longer be heel grabber, but Israel. <laughs> but now it will be struggles with God. <laughs> because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Um, persevered is probably makes more sense. Like overcome gives us the sense of winning, like you've beaten God. That is not at all what the story is trying to say. He's saying you have persevered. It's, it's as if he says, like, I got to give it to you. You're scrappy. Like, but it's, it's fascinating. Here's, here's what's, what's, this whole thing is a reminder for what the rest of the Bible story is going to be. A struggle of a people, a struggle to trust God, to obey, to walk together, but the blessing is the promise of the ongoing relationship. And it is a turning point in his life. The late rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he offers this interpretation that I think is really helpful. He says, it's as if the man, the angel, said to him, in the past, you struggled to be Esau, struggled with man. In the future, you will struggle not to be Esau, but to be yourself. In the past, you held on to Esau's heel. In the future, you will hold on to God. You will not let go of him. He will not let go of you. Now let go of Esau so that you can be free to hold on to God. And this is what we see happen the next day. See, instead of preparing after all of this for a battle and protecting himself as he had been preparing to do the night before, the next day is a different story. Jacob changes his posture and takes the lead when he sees Esau out in the distance, instead of hiding in the back, okay? Some of the flocks have still been up there, but he meets Esau face to face. Now, up until this point, Jacob's life had been characterized by one driving need. He wants to be Esau, and he wants to have all that Esau has. He wants to occupy Esau's space. He struggles with him in the womb. He's born holding onto his heel. He buys the birthright. He dresses in Esau clothes. He takes Esau's blessing. When the blind Isaac says, who are you? He says, I am Esau, your firstborn. But now he has been blessed as himself without the need to deceive anyone, even in all of his imperfections. Okay? And he has struggled with God face to face. And he now has a new experience of humility. That's the saving grace here, the new humility. So he sees his brother, and his brother comes up and embraces him. 
See, Jacob was wrong all along with what the expectation was. His brother was feeling similar to him, desiring reconciliation. And they weep. And what happens then? And this is really fascinating in chapter 33. Esau says, what's the deal with all the flocks and stuff? And Jacob, we do not get the whole pacifying or anything like this anymore. There's a different spirit in Jacob. And Jacob says, they're for you. I want to give them to you. Now, Jacob knows that his life is no longer in danger, so he wouldn't have to have done that. Jacob knows that he's safe with Esau, but he still says, I want to give them to you. And and Esau says, I've got plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. The word gift is the exact same Hebrew word for blessing, the thing that he stole. So Jacob is saying, listen, I'm a different person now. I want to return the blessing that I stole from you because I've now received the blessing that God wanted to give me all along, which was about working with me as I struggle with God, not about all of this material wealth and this rights of the firstborn. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now remember, the night before, he saw the face of God. That's what he says. He says, I've now seen the face of God, and I haven't died, so I need to bless this place. That's what he said the night before. And so, so what's happening here is this incredible moment that he no longer needs to buy Esau, but he now wants to give the blessing back because he's finally received the blessing that was intended for him. And it's like seeing the face of God when he looks at his brother because it's a reminder of the night before he was finally known for who he was and he didn't have to play games anymore. And the same thing happens here. So in this moment, There is not only a lack of deceit, but there is this new sense of identity. I am not just Jacob, but I am Israel. I am one who struggles with God. You are Esau. I don't want to fight anymore. And that's enough. Interestingly, a a few chapters later, or a few verses later, um, when he arrives, what we get in English is after Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely in Shechem. And the literal Hebrew phrase is, and Jacob emerged complete. (laughs) At least that's how the rabbis helped me understand it. And Jacob emerged complete, which is the final part of this Jacob narrative before we move on to his sons. And Jacob emerged complete after he had finally experienced the reconciliation with Esau, after he had finally understood his own place. Now, for the rest of his life, Jacob walks with a limp. He's a wounded chosen one, not like, not unlike other wounded chosen one, the other wounded chosen one that we will meet later in the story of the Bible, Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah. But unlike Jesus, Jacob brought about his own pain. He's essentially wounded for his own sin. Um, His limp becomes a reminder for God's people to keep trusting the blessings of God rather than crawling over other people to get them, all right? Now, don't create a theological rule here, friends. Um, Don't start thinking God's going around hurting people to teach them a lesson. Um, Our own selfish choices lead enough to brokenness. But God continues to work and remind that I am going to be leading you. Stop forcing your own blessings. Now, despite the moment of reconciliation, um, the life and and family that Jacob has built continues to experience the fallout of the culture that they had created. Let's just lay that out there. Um, There are tragic repercussions for the rest of his son's lives, how they treat each other, 
Um, and he and Jacob ends up being a pretty broken man by the end. It's hard to see if he ever even grasps truly the blessing of God, if he understands. But yet he's still a part of God's unfolding redemption. It's a crazy story that has little to hold on to that's good, but there's enough there to remind us that God's constant desire and commitment is to work with and through people, even sometimes if we don't deserve it or if we don't get it. And it's a reminder that this story culminates in the fullness of Jesus. And Jesus was the one, right, who taught us that God blesses all, even the surprising ones. Jacob is convinced that he's got to have the firstborn rights to be blessed by God. Jesus comes on the scene and says, guess what? God's blessing is for all, but particularly for the ones who are suffering, particularly for the ones who are hurting, particularly for the ones who feel weak. That's, and, and God's blessing and promise is that he will be with them, that they will experience him in deep ways, and that things will be all right. Um, and God's promise of care and presence is founded on God's faithfulness, even when we break that covenant of promise over and over again through poor choices or selfishness. So, so God does not give up on us, right? God, I love that, you know, Jacob, um, Jacob for, for feeding uh, Esau, like, steals the birthright, but Jesus just feeds the 5,000 freely and has compassion on them when he notices them, right? Like, there's this, there's this complete reversal. Jesus reveals the lies while still giving grace to the liar and undoes all of the cycles of family vengeance and dysfunction that we see. Jesus changes the narrative ultimately. Um, and, it's, and it's kind of hopeful knowing that all this craziness is a part of God's redemptive journey. This is all a part of God's journey that led up to Jesus' fullness, but it's all a part of it. We don't erase this from the scriptures just because people acted horrible toward each other. Um, we also don't sanitize it and say that somehow these are our role models in every way when it looks nothing like the heart and the character of Jesus. This is a story of God being like, oh, all right, I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to garden in this thorny soil. So um, if it's helpful to have some clear takeaways from a story like this, since today's was just a big story, uh, not a typical sermon, um, then here's, here's four big ideas that can be helpful. Um, God is with us in our wrestling and in our struggling, even when it's complicated. The whole idea of the identity of struggles with God being given is, listen, this is not always going to be easy. It's going to be a complicated journey, but I'm going to hold on to you. I don't want you to hold on to me. It's in you. And so, so God is with us in that wrestling, even when our questions are about God. Even when we're frustrated, God, where are you? What's going on? God's with us in that. Um, weakness moves us toward humility. This is something that we talk about all the time. But the idea that when we don't have the power, then all of a sudden we start to realize that we don't need to constantly be trying to grasp for it. And when we, when we are in a position of weakness, we are more open to hearing and experiencing and meeting God. Um, it's never too late for reconciliation. I think it's important to note that that with Esau and Jacob. This is decades later. There was still an unhealed wound there. And reconciliation, there's never a time that reconciliation becomes truly impossible. Now, there are things that do not depend on us. That's important to note. That you can't live in guilt if there's a lack of reconciliation. But, um, but it's never too late. And as far as it depends on us, 
we are to be people who are peacemakers. Um, and then, finally, God's faithfulness is bigger than our flaws. And that's the big story of, of Jacob. God's faithfulness is larger than our flaws. Um, and God can even work through, let's just say, idiots like Jacob. Right? And me. Um, so so there's, there's hope there. All right. Take a breath. I know this was a massive amount of time and energy. Um, and we will just pause for a few moments with Jesus. And then, um, and then if you want to respond to any of these questions, we'll take like four or five minutes for Catchbox. Um, and, uh, and hopefully we'll continue to learn through and with each other. Lord, we are, we can feel kind of complicated about stories like this. Um, where it feels like the undeserving are the ones that continue to get the blessings. Uh, and yet, I, help, I, I pray that you help us see your faithfulness emerging in a story like this. Um, wherever we need to hear things, Lord, I pray that you just stir us. And I thank you that you somehow were willing to work through people for long enough for yourself to be revealed in fullness in Jesus. So we thank you for that. Amen.